Our scripture passage this night is Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 through 35. It can be found in your pew Bible on page 1,718. 1,718. Hear now the reading of God's holy word. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the brothers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He made no distinction between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of the disciples a yoke that neither we nor our fathers have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the miraculous signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God at first showed his concern by taking from the Gentiles a people for himself. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the remnant of men may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things. That these that have been known for ages... It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. Then the apostles and elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas called Barsabbas, or Barsabbas, and Silas, two men who were leaders among the brothers. With them they sent the following letter, the apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. We have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agreed to choose some men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. 
It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. The men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas, who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the brothers. After spending some time there, they, they were sent off by the brothers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. As far the reading of God's holy word, may he bless it to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Tonight, we're beginning a series of sermons on the canons of Dort. It is one of our confessional standards here at this church, and it is the 400th anniversary since the Synod of Dort was gathered, gathered together in the years of 1618 and 1619. And maybe some of you are wondering what importance this has to you. Uh, maybe some of you are wondering why exactly it is that I read uh, Acts chapter 15. But uh, one of the reasons why I believe discussing the importance of the canons of Dort uh, is beneficial to you all is because it is a long-standing issue that some people believe specificity in doctrine is divisive and unnecessary. In fact, somebody wrote in to the banner, and I feel comfortable reading this because it was printed in our um, monthly magazine from our denomination, and this was a reply to an article that was written in the January edition of the banner, which was entitled, Commemorating the Canons. Uh, Synod 2018 said that uh, this year... Christian Reformed Churches and its organizations should commemorate the, the Synod of Dort and the canons. Uh, this is what one gentleman wrote in saying, the 400th anniversary would be an excellent time to ditch the rigid, exclusionary, and insular canons of Dort. The article commemorating the canons and a previous editorial argue it still has value because of the emphasis on God's grace. However, that doctrine is sufficiently covered in the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession. Let's put the canons on the history bookshelf and look to address contemporary issues such as reconciliation among people of different races and to stand by people experiencing any form of suffering and need. A good place to start would be the adoption of the Belhar Confession as a confession of faith. Our sister denomination, the Reformed Church in America, did so in 2016. We should move forward in faith and unity. I'm sure this man may mean well, but brothers and sisters in Christ, to me there is nothing more contemporary as an issue than defending the gospel of grace. And it is that very thing which the canons of Dort were written to accomplish. And the canons of Dort stand throughout time and history as a declaration that the gospel must the gospel of grace must be defended in all ages 
And the way that I want to kind of introduce this um, series that we're going to be doing on the Canons of, of Door is by initially bringing forward before us this evening the historical background that inform us as to how the Canons of Dort came about, because that's going to give us a context by which we're going to then look at the document and see uh, its true meaning and its true purpose in its writing. The reason I wanted to um, talk about the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15 is because the Jerusalem Council shows us that there is a biblical warrant to the kind of meeting that the Synod of Dort was. A biblical precedent, you could say, uh, that was set forward in Scripture. So our theme statement this evening, of course, is what I stated earlier. The gospel of grace must be defended In all ages. And tonight we're going to look at this reality in basically two stages. The first is we're going to talk about the Jerusalem Council. As a biblical precedent, um, as an explanation as to the way that these things come about throughout church history... Uh, and then we're going to kind of move forward all the way in history uh, and then talk about the Synod of Dort. Now, what's interesting to me is that uh, during my study, I realized that the way that these, we could call them theological controversies, are ruled on happens the same way over and over again. And so... Um, and so we could uh, look at the Jerusalem Council together, is what we're going to do, and see how those events played out. And then when we look at the Synod of Dort, you're going to find that those events in history then pretty much played out in the same way. And so let's, uh, let's start by looking at the Jerusalem Council. I'll just leave the uh, theme statement up there because I don't have much to write on here. Number one. Theological controversy. Look with me at Acts 15. It says, verse 1 and 2, right here. Some men came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So what we have here is a theological controversy. Some were saying that you need to be circumcised according to the law of Moses in order to be saved. Paul and Barnabas and those like him were saying, no, you don't need to be. And so there was debate that ensued. There was arguing that ensued because this is about the gospel and we need to get this right. So there's two sides into a, in a theological controversy. There's two sides. And in this uh, scriptural example, we see uh, the side of 
of those who believe that you must be circumcised and the side of those whom you believe do not need to be circumcised. Uh, and this is where the theological controversy uh, was hinged on. But it was much deeper than that because it really went to the heart of what Christ accomplished. And that is, what are the ceremonial aspects of the Old Testament law that are fulfilled in Christ? And is circumcision one of those? Because none of us are going to argue that we no longer need to sacrifice animals, right? Because Christ is the final sacrifice. But the question here was, did Christ in his work do away with circumcision? The requirement of circumcision. Well, Paul would say in Colossians 2, uh, yes, he did. And so this is where the theological controversy begins. But then we read, continuing on in verse 2, So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled, they spoke about how the Gentiles had been converted. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. So we could say there's a theological controversy. And then the second thing that occurs is that um, a gathering or a council is convened. Council is gathered. In the early church, those who were in authority were the apostles and elders, and the church in Jerusalem held a prominent role. So at this time, what was done was, was bring the apostles and the elders together at the church of Jerusalem, and let's talk about this theological issue, and let's lay it to rest. Let's resolve it. So that going forward, we won't have these complications anymore. And if you want a, a more clear example of something like a theological controversy uh, in the scriptures, read Galatians. Because that's what Paul's dealing with in Galatians. is the idea that Christ plus something. Christ plus circumcision. And the argument that no, Christ alone. Christ alone can be uh, what we need for our salvation. So this meeting is gathered, this council is gathered, and discussion is ensued. One side of the debate has spoken. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. By the way, interesting point here in verse 5 is that those who belong to the party of the Pharisees. So when we read in John chapter 9 of these Pharisees who are religiously abusive, we must hold out hope that through Christ, some Pharisees, or maybe even many Pharisees, came to faith in him. But they still kind of have an essence of that legalism, we could say, in this situation. Because they're saying, no, the Gentiles have to be circumcised and required to obey the law of Moses. Now, this is not saying that the Gentiles can't become Christians without becoming Jews. In a sense, it is. But more so, the Gentiles can't become Christians without putting on these uh, ceremonial aspects of the law. They were confused with what Christ had fulfilled and done. So verse 6 tells us, apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, then, we have these presentations. 
Peter gets up and proclaims what he came to know through going to the house of Cornelius and seeing the Holy Spirit poured out upon them. Peter proclaims that God has made no distinction between us and the Gentiles now. We, are, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are, Peter says. The whole assembly became silent then as they listened to Paul and Barnabas' testimony, telling about all the great and wonderful things that God had done through them in, in, in and amongst the Gentiles. And then James, the brother of Jesus, the writer of the book of James, gets up and he speaks as to the scriptural uh, Vertility, the scriptural truth of this position, that it is proclaimed by the prophets that the Gentiles would bear the name of God. And so, then, they do something next. And what is that? Uh, a decision is made. And then verified in writing. A decision is made and then verified in writing. So then what do they do? They say, it's my judgment that we should write this letter and send it out to all these Gentiles who have been disturbed by this false teaching that we do not require them to be circumcised, but we only require these few things which they were glad to do. And so... This decision is verified. A letter is written, which Luke gives us right here in the book of Acts. And then this letter is given to trusted individuals and sent to Antioch. But we can see as an expression of being sent to Antioch that it was sent to all Gentile churches or all Gentile believers. That they should not concern themselves with these things and should not be worried about these people who have gone out from Jerusalem teaching this false teaching that they were not authorized to do so. So here we have the Jerusalem Council, which is initiated or brought together by a theological controversy, which has two sides. A council is brought together. Uh, there are conversations about what needs to happen. Debate goes on. But then uh, presentations are given from both sides. And a decision is made and then verified in writing and sent out. Okay. This is, this is what blows my mind. It's just amazing how God has worked and been gracious to his people throughout history. So now let's look at the Synod of Dort. And in this period, or in this part of the sermon, I'm basically going to try to give you a brief historical sketch of what brought about the Synod of Dort. Well, one thing that we need to see is that the church took the Jerusalem Council account in Acts 15 and continued to do that throughout time, throughout church history. So we have the Arian controversy, which is where we get the words of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And you have the Pelagian controversy in the 4th century. Council is convened. Decisions are made about false teachings that are then outlawed or then told that these are false teachings. This is what the true church of Christ believes. And this has been practiced throughout church history as a way in which God's truth and the gospel of grace is defended in all ages and kept from being corrupted 
Okay? And the Synod of Dort is just another example of this. Well, the Synod of Dort came about through a theological controversy itself. And that time, what really brought this need to have a church gathering was the presence of Jacob Arminius. And Jacob Arminius went to Geneva and was taught under Theodore Beza, who was the second-hand man to John Calvin at the time. He came back and he began pastoring in the church. And he was a, a faithful pastor, except he started preaching through the book of Romans and people started having concerns about what he was preaching. In Romans 4 and 5, he began to teach that Adam would have died even if he hadn't sinned, that death is inevitable. In Romans 7, he proclaimed that Paul was speaking of his pre-regenerate state, not his condition as a Christian. And in Romans 9 through 11, he focused in on the importance and the centrality of the free will of man. And so the congregation members were getting a little worried about what was going on here. In fact, one of his co-workers said, what's going on? You sound like a Socinian, which is another name of theology, um, a false uh, theology, a false uh, belief. And this is at the time then that Arminius confessed that he had issues with the Belgic Confessions article on predestination. But he promised he would not teach against it and that he would remain within the bounds of the Dutch church's uh, Reformed Confessions at the time, which was not the three forms of unity, but the two forms of unity, the Heidelberg Catechism and the Belgic Confession. But then Jacob Arminius left that church and he began to be a teacher at the school of Leiden which trained pastors for ministry. And Jacob Arminius clashed with another fellow professor at this school of Leiden on the issue of predestination. And they had arguments going back and forth. But Arminius always said, he confirmed that he was within the boundaries of the confessional standards, which you were required to sign off on in order to be a teacher at this institution. And eventually, Jacob Arminius died. But, as you may know, we should be very concerned about the, the truthfulness and the correctness and the orthodoxy of our school's professors, our seminary's professors, because if a man becomes a pastor, he may have influence over one church, two church, three churches. But if a man becomes a professor at a seminary, he has influence over many churches because he trains the pastors that go out and preach in these churches. And Arminius did just that. And so swiftly, right after his death in 1610, his followers and those who believed in what he was teaching in his classrooms there in Leiden gathered together 
and wrote what they called the Remonstrance. And essentially, these remonstrants were uh, disagreements or places where they wanted to make amendments or to make clarification in, uh, in what they believed. And they were um, five points, the remonstrants, that went like this. We believe in conditional election. That is, we believe that God foresees faith. And that is why he elects you. So you could call it eternal reaction rather than election. Uh, Unlimited atonement. We believe Christ made salvation possible for everyone, but did not uh, accomplish it for anyone. Uh, Serious depravity. They believed in the depravity of man in a sense in which God still graciously allowed for the freedom of the will and the freedom of the choice to uh, have uh, believe in Jesus. And they proclaim a resistible grace. That is, God can want you to be saved with all his might. Christ can die for you on the cross and, and, and take the punishment for your sins. And the Holy Spirit can work with all his might to bring you to salvation. But you, mighty man, you can resist the trying God. And then lastly, they were uncertain about the perseverance of those who have faith and stated that they wished they would need to study more in order to come to a further conclusion on that. These were the five remonstrants. And these were the things where they disagreed with the Belgic Confession and the Reformed theology, which had become part of the Dutch Reformed Church. That's the theological controversy. And there was all kinds of political unrest because at this time, uh, the church was part of the politics, uh, the establishment. And there was even a possibility of battle going on until finally the prince called for a council. He called for a synod to be gathered in 1618. The synod of Dort gathered in the Dutch uh, city of Dortrick, which was a port city. And it was a, a very unique gathering of the Reformed faith because it wasn't just uh, Dutch delegates, but it was international in its flavor. There were delegates from uh, England, from, from uh, Switzerland, from Germany, from Geneva. And uh, the French delegates wanted to come, but the king wouldn't let them. And this council was gathered largely for the purpose of putting to rest this theological controversy that had arisen in the Netherlands about this remonstrance, this Arminian position. In fact, uh, I listened to a talk recently, and apparently this was such a big theological controversy in, in, in Dutchland, in, in the Netherlands, that the fishermen on the barges were arguing about predestination. I wish I could get you guys to argue about predestination. <laughs> the Synod of Dort began in 1618 and ended in 1619, and there were hundreds of meetings. Now, I'm going to Synod for the Christian Reform denomination this summer, and it's supposed to only go for a week. 
And can you imagine what it would have been like back then to have a synod that went over an entire year? And this council convened to deal with the issue of this theological controversy, which really isn't new at all. It's like Pelagius in the 4th century. It's like the semi-Pelagianism that the Roman Catholic Church taught, that the Reformers opposed, that Martin Luther opposed when he clung to the Augustinian view that salvation is all of God. And that the grace of God must be glorified above all. The sovereignty of God and the salvation of man is something to be praised and cherished. That the gospel of grace must be defended in all ages. And of course, at this Synod of Dort, presentations were given. The remonstrants were there, gathered, and they sat at a table in the middle of the meeting. And they were given opportunities to answer as to what they believed and what their convictions were. But it seemed as if they were more concerned about getting the government to intervene for them and to turn the church, the Dutch church, into a more liberal church in the sense that we want to allow a variety of positions and have more freedom in these areas of conviction. But that didn't pass. And so the president of the Synod of Dort kicked the Arminians out and said, we're now going to judge you based on your writings, and we're going to respond with our own writing. You don't have the floor anymore. Because we can't continue. We can't go through the process that we're meant to, because you keep trying to interrupt and slow this process down and not listen to what we're trying to get you to to do and to say and explain yourself. So presentations were given by the Arminian side, largely in their writings, and then the presentation was given in um, the, the Dutch Reform side. And that's what we have. We have the Canons of Dort. And maybe many of you have, uh, it's been a long time since you've read through the Canons of Dort. They're in the back of our Green Psalter hymnal on page 91 and following. And they are under five heads of doctrine, the Canons of Dort. And these five heads of doctrine respond to each and every one of those five remonstrants that uh, the Arminians wrote. And so, in response to the Arminians' uh, doctrine of conditional election, the Reformed Church in, 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 in the Netherlands said, we believe that the Bible teaches unconditional election. That God does not elect us based on foreseen faith, but that in His good grace, He has decreed that we would come to salvation in Christ, not because of anything good that He saw in us, but surely out of His own uh, will and pleasure. In response to the Arminians' doctrine, unlimited atonement, that Christ died for everyone to make possible salvation for everyone, they said, no, we believe in limited atonement or particular redemption. That is that Christ came And he died for all of his elect. And he ensured and he actually bought and he actually accomplished their salvation. That does not mean Christ's sacrifice is of less value. 
Because if God had willed that Christ's sacrifice had saved every single person in all the world, he could have willed that. But that's not what he willed. Um, in response to the Armenians' doctrine, serious depravity, the Reformed Church in the Netherlands proclaimed that the, the scriptures teach total depravity. That is, that we're not as sinful as we could be, but every part of us has been affected by sin. And our nature has been changed. In response to the Armenians' doctrine of resistible grace, the uh, Reformed Church in the Netherlands posited that the scriptures teach irresistible grace. That is, God, when he calls you to salvation, is as effective in drawing you to faith in Christ. And then in response to what I think is probably the most depressing doctrine of the Arminians, uncertainty about perseverance, the Reformed Church in the Netherlands proclaimed that we believe in the perseverance of the saints, that God's word teaches that he who began a good work in you will see it to its completion and present you on that day before Christ blameless. And these became what we know as the canons of Dort, or maybe some of us call it now the five points of Calvinism. And uh, we think tulip, because, you know, of course, Dutch love their tulips, is a little bit better than ultip, because that's actually the way that the canons of Dort are ordered. And the outcome of this was that the Armenians were told to step down from the positions of ministry and that this was upheld as the decision of the Reformed Church in the Netherlands and verified in writing, just as the Jerusalem Council. And the canons of Dort then became part of the Dutch, the Dutch Reformed Church's confessional standard, and that's why we have now not the two forms of unity, but the three forms of unity. And it's important that we understand that when we say three forms of unity, we're not saying that all these doctrines are unified together and, and proclaim the same truths, although that is true. We're saying that when we have a confessional standard by which we hold ourselves to, it brings unity amongst the believers to know that we believe and hold the same truths. And in, in uh, closing with that, I thought it would be interesting to read to you something I found in the Mid-America Library. That is a catechism of the Canons of Dort. We, you know, Heidelberg Catechism, we like the Heidelberg Catechism. Maybe we'll just turn the Canons of Dort and do a catechism. It was written by the Reverend B.J. Danhoff. He was an old CRC minister many years ago. And what he says about the importance of the Canons of Dort in his first lesson in question and answer style, uh, I think is greatly impactful. What is meant by the Canons of Dort? By the Canons of Dort are meant the confessions of the Reformed Church while gathered in a national synod in the city of Dort on five points of doctrine which had been attacked by Arminians, especially known for their views on free will. What are those five points of doctrine? Divine predestination, Christ's death and redemption of man thereby, the guilt and corruption of man, man's conversion and the manner thereof, the perseverance or preservation of the saints. What other name is sometimes given to these canons? Often called the five points of Calvinism. What authority do they have in Reformed churches? Reformed churches in general regard them as containing the teaching of the Bible on these five matters of doctrine. 
If any minister should disagree with these canons, would he be allowed to remain in the Reformed churches? No, for although the Reformed churches do not regard these canons as of equal authority with Scripture, yet if any should disagree and seek to propagate divergent views on these points of doctrine, it would be the duty of Reformed churches to excommunicate such. When were these canons formulated? The years 1618 and 1619. Must we consider the five points of doctrine treated in these canons important? Yes. Divine predestination has been called the heart of the church. Christ's death and and the redemption is the central fact of the gospel. The guilt and corruption of man shows the greatness of mankind's fall and its need of salvation. The manner of conversion is important with regard to God's glory. The preservation of the saints is of great comfort to the true church. Have these canons found general acceptance in the church of God? Practically all Reformed churches have accepted them as true, but many attacks have been directed against the canons. Pelagians, Arminians, Socinians, and others refuse them. Do these canons treat these five points of doctrine positively? And this is how the canons are laid out. The first part of each head of doctrine is a positive description of the true doctrine, but this is followed by a rejection of errors, which the Synod aimed to refute. Is anything else besides a positive description of the true doctrine and a rejection of errors given in these canons? Yes, under each head of doctrine appear articles which are introductory to the positive description of the true doctrine. And here's question 11 I find fascinating. Are any members of churches required to express agreement with these canons? Yes, every minister, elder, and deacon of the Christian Reformed churches is required to express agreement by signing his name to them. I hope what you find as we go through this series is that God has been faithful to his church, that the gospel of grace has been defended in all ages, and that we hold dear as a church uh, one expression of that in the canons of Dort. And as we look at what they teach, I hope you begin to behold the wonder and the amazingness of God's grace in saving you in Jesus Christ. And proclaim, just as Peter did at the Council of Jerusalem, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time that we can look to your word, and we ask that you would help us to see how amazing your grace is, the way that you have saved us, that salvation is all of you. And the only thing that we have anything to do with in our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. And we praise you for the gospel of grace that has come to us in Jesus Christ, that we may know, above all, That we are not worthy to be elected, but have been called the elect. That we are not worthy to have the Son of God die for us, but in His death and resurrection, our salvation is ensured. That we are not worthy as sinners who are stuck in depravity to receive and to come to know and to have peace with you. And we are not worthy to be recipients of your grace, but you have so changed our hearts and our minds by your Holy Spirit that we willingly 
come to you and embrace your son and salvation. And we are not worthy to stand before you at the end of age and a new heavens and a new earth and worship you throughout all eternity. But in your grace, you will cause us to persevere. We pray that you would open our eyes to the gospel of grace as we study these truths found in your word. In Christ we pray. Amen.